0: It's really an incredible story, isn't it? A wise and powerful father, seeing humankind embroiled in conflict and violence, knowing that they needed a guiding light and a savior, sends his only son as an infant to the earth. Despite the mysterious and somewhat scandalous circumstances of his arrival, his human parents, who were Humble and unremarkable by the world's standards, raised him as their own, faithfully doing their best to prepare him in a little town in the middle of nowhere for his eventual mission and purpose. As a grown man, he was a model of goodness and virtue, and he dedicated himself to serving and saving people in need you're nodding along, you know what I'm talking about, Superman. <laughs> Some of you are like, oh yeah, that is the story of Superman, isn't it? I, I did something similar last Christmas with Star Wars, and I do this because I think that there's, there's something true to the fact that the stories that we find perpetually compelling are rooted in the greatest story of all time. And so we're gonna we're gonna work through that story today, the Christmas story, the, the beginning of Jesus. But before we do that, we're gonna just ask this question, which is what is Christmas? What is Christmas? You know, and I was thinking about this in the context of superheroes, if you're if you're sort of a superhero nerd or a comic nerd, you know that every superhero has an origin story. An origin story. It explains where the superhero came from, maybe how they got their pattern, how they got their powers, and and it sets the stage for the rest of their life and their mission. And it provides clues and context, and maybe foreshadowing and previews. Of what's going to come. and so the the story of Christmas, in a sense, is is the origin story of Jesus, at least Jesus um, as as a human. And so we're going to read through the Christmas story, but we're going to we're going to talk about some background first. So we're going to set the stage, and we're going to look at the story of Christmas at the origin story of Jesus, and we're going to see what that points to in terms of his eventual mission and purpose. So before we actually read the story, I'm going to talk to you about a term that I've told you about before, messianic, Expectation, Messianic expectation. If you've been here for a while, you've heard me talk about this, but I'm going to talk about it again. And it, it's a term that you can use uh, this, this week to impress your family. When you're, uh, when you're, when you're at Christmas, you can, as you're gathered around opening presents, you can talk to your family and say, what we're celebrating today is a fulfillment of messianic expectation, right? You can sound really, really smart. Don't do that. Uh, but messianic expectation, it's, it's a term that scholars use to describe the state of Israel before the coming of Jesus the Messiah. They were in waiting, they were in longing, they were in expectation that God was going to intervene in their situation to save them, to rescue them from their sin and from uh, what they believed was oppression from outsiders. And so they were waiting and they were longing for this long-awaited, this long-promised Savior or Deliverer, or the Hebrew word is Messiah. The Greek word is Christ. And they believed that this Messiah was going to be their King and was going to lead them into revolution and, and, and lead them into freedom and liberation, much like Moses had done for the children of Israel so many generations previously. And so this was was where Israel was in the first century. They were living as an occupied territory. Rome had occupied them. They were under foreign oppression. For many of the Jews, this was viewed as unacceptable for God's people. It was a sign that God had not yet saved them from their sin, and so they were longing that God would break into the world in a fresh way to save and to rescue them. That leads us to the Christmas story. We're going to begin in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Um, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We'll put the text up here on the screen as usual. So we're just going to read through the story, and I'm going to highlight some aspects that maybe in our comfort with the, with the story, we, we pass over a little bit, or maybe we become so comfortable that we don't, we don't necessarily uh, appreciate the scandal or the obscurity of it. So we're going to uh, spend just a little bit of time in Luke chapter 2. This morning, here's how Luke begins. He says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their town to register. Now, this is a big deal. Luke drops a name here, a name that if you were living in first century Roman Empire, you knew the name of Caesar Augustus. Caesar was a really big deal. Caesar Augustus was the Roman emperor from 27 B.C., to 1480. So he was emperor for a very long time. He was the son of Julius Caesar, right? He became the emperor. And under Caesar Augustus, the empire of Rome experienced an unprecedented era of peace and prosperity known as the Pax Romana. He unified The Roman Empire. He brought peace, he brought prosperity, he built roads, and he he took this empire and he just brought this unprecedented era of new peace and new prosperity. And because of that, he was very, very uh, highly regarded by many of the the Romans in his day because of this peace and prosperity that he brought. And because of that, he became known by, by several different titles. He became known as God. Son of God, he was called Lord, he was called uh, Savior, Uh, he was known as the one who ended war and brought peace. So when, uh, as a matter of fact, we have an inscription from a calendar um, from the ancient city of Prien, and in the calendar there's an inscription dedicated to Caesar Augustus, and one of the things that it says about his birthday, it says this, the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the world. The birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the world. Now, this word, good news, comes from the Greek word uh, euangelion. It's the very same word that we translate as gospel in our Bibles. And so the, the, the Roman world believed that Caesar was Savior, that he was Savior, and that his birth was the beginning of good news for the world. Does that story sound familiar? Right? Luke is intentionally, this is well known in the ancient first century Roman Empire of which Israel and Palestine were a part, this was well known. So Luke is intentionally uh, calling out Caesar by name as he begins this birth narrative. So we're going to have a major switch. We're, gonna talk, we're talking about somebody that everybody knows. Everybody knows the name of Caesar Augustus. Everybody knows where Rome is. And then all of a sudden Luke is gonna he's gonna shift, right? He's gonna we're gonna have a scene change from, from famous Caesar Augustus in Rome to somebody that nobody even knows. After Caesar, Luke says, So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Now, this is quite a scene change from somebody everybody knew about, from a place everybody knew about, to somebody that nobody has ever heard of in a place that very few people have ever heard of. Last year, when I told this story, I told you that that would be somebody like, it'd be like talking about... Washington, D.C. or New York City, and then Elletsville. Now, I was corrected afterwards that there were still some people in New York and D.C. who knew about Ellitsville. but most people, right, if you go around the world or around the country and you mention Elletsville, most people aren't going to know where that is. That's what it's like when Luke switches from talking about Caesar in Rome to Joseph in Bethlehem and Nazareth. These are places that nobody, they're not, they're not blips on anybody's map, not anybody who's anybody, right? So if you're expecting that God is going to break into the world and do something new, you're probably expecting that he's going to do it in Rome. But if not in Rome, at least he's going to do it in Jerusalem at the site of the temple. But Luke takes us somewhere that nobody's paying attention to, to somebody that nobody's paying attention to, this guy. Named Joseph. Now, Luke is dropping some clues here. He tells us that Joseph belonged to the house and line of David. So he's beginning to drop some clues here that, that something is taking place. Because David, if you're familiar with the story of the Old Testament, David was sort of the quintessential king of Israel. He was the one who, re- who brought Israel to its, its pinnacle of greatness. Right? He united uh, the, the kingdom, he defeated the enemies, and, and there was a promise that God would bring about a Savior much like David at some point. And so when Luke tells us that Joseph was of the house and line of David, he's dropping some clues that something is beginning to take place here, something significant is about to happen. But it's happening with somebody that nobody's paying attention to in a place that nobody knows about. Now, what's interesting here is we see another juxtaposition. when uh, We're told that Caesar Augustus decreed that the whole world should be, that there should be a census so the whole world can be taxed. We see now that Joseph has to travel from where he is in Nazareth up to his hometown of Bethlehem because that's how they, um, according to Jewish custom, did their censuses back at the time. And so what we see here is a picture of Roman oppression. Now we have, uh, this is a, if you're familiar with, First century context, you know that many of the ancient Jews resented the fact that they were taxed by Rome. They didn't like the fact they were taxed by Rome. And so now Joseph has to make this 90 mile journey to go register so that he can be taxed correctly. That's what's happening here. And so we see again the big guy and the little guy placed in juxtaposition to one another. The story goes on. Luke says in verse 5 he says, He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him. And was expecting a child. So we, we, we get some more information here. Not only was Joseph a relative nobody. Nobody really knew who Joseph was. He wasn't some prominent, well-known citizen. But he was engaged to a pregnant woman. Right? They weren't married yet. They hadn't gone through the full marriage. From one he was engaged to a pregnant woman. That's still scandalous today in 21st century America. Imagine how scandalous that would have been in the first century Jewish context. So you have this engaged couple, she's pregnant, so and they're making this 90-mile journey by foot so that they can be taxed. And she's expecting a child. So the point I'm trying to make here is that the first Christmas, you know, we celebrate Christmas with all sorts of Uh, pomp, and circumstance, and decoration, and and we dress up nice, and and it's very dignified when we celebrate. it. The very first Christmas was shrouded in obscurity and scandal. Obscurity and scandal. People that nobody paid any attention to who who were scandalous, scandalized. Do you think anybody believed Mary when she said, oh, it's not Joseph's, it's God's? No, that's not a, that, most people don't believe that. Would you believe somebody if they said that they were pregnant by God? No, it sounds like a pretty bad excuse. So, so we have all this obscurity and scale, and yet, as we're going to see, this is the, the situation that God chooses to use to enter into the situation to fulfill his promises. The story continues. Oh. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Can you imagine? Can you imagine giving birth to a baby on a road trip? I mean, we, we had our, our, one, our almost one-year-old almost a year ago. And like around the time that he was due, we didn't even want to travel up to Indianapolis. Okay, because we, we, want, we had our go bag. We, had our, we didn't want to go. We, and we had a car, right? Can you imagine on a 90-mile journey giving birth to a baby on a road trip? And not only that. Uh, when, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in what? A manger. Do you, you know what a manger is, right? A manger is an animal's feeding trough. It's what animals eat out of. Why did she place him in a manger? Because there was no guest room available for them. We don't know why. We don't know if everybody had made their way to Bethlehem and there was just no room. Now, you... When we talk about nativity, you'll often see, like, there was this hotel, and there were, there's like a no vacancy sign on the hotel, so she gives birth in like a cave or something like that. That's not really how it worked. Most, they didn't have a whole lot of real inns back then, There was, uh, but a lot of places uh, did have guest rooms, but they were full, and so w- where they were most likely was in the lower room of a house, the bottom floor of a house, where the animals stayed when it was cold. Now, we don't know if there were animals there or not, but we always see animals in nativity stories. The Bible doesn't say anything about animals, but we know that there was no guest guest room available and so they're in this lower room of a house and there's no place to lay the baby so they lay this this baby in a manger in an animal's feeding trough you don't really get much more humble circumstances than this the story continues we're going to have another shift change here we're going to shift from from this baby in a manger we're going to shift now to the fields nearby and here's what luke says There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Now, again, we're so familiar with the story. We have the shepherds standing by, and we we sort of imagine shepherds as like this really um, respectable profession. We look up to the shepherds as if they're this gentle, respectable profession— Nobody really liked shepherds back then. Shepherds, they sort of, they represented uh, the sinners and the outcasts. They they weren't very well liked. They were believed to be untrustworthy. Um, And and so what what Luke is doing here by talking about the shepherds, he's pointing to a group of people that were already on, on the margins of society, people who were already outcasts. This is the group of people, as we'll see, that an angel of the Lord appeared to. He didn't appear to to Caesar Augustus in Rome to announce the birth of a new king. He didn't appear to King Herod in Judea to announce the birth of a new king. He didn't appear to the high priest at the temple to announce the birth of the new king, the Messiah. He appeared to these shepherds, these outcasts, these sinners on the margins of society to announce the birth of a new king. And here's what the angel says. The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you, what? Good news news that will cause great joy for who? All. All the people. Now, what does this sound like? This sounds an awful lot like what people were saying about Caesar Augustus, right? Whose birth was the beginning of good news for all people. We have very clearly here, we see... Jesus, this infant baby Jesus, humble, born to nobody parents in the middle of nowhere, but the language being used, as we're going to see, is putting him in juxtaposition to what everybody else was saying about the most powerful person in the known world at that time. The angels go on, they say to the shepherds, today, in, <coughs> excuse me, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. Again, Savior is another word that was used to describe Caesar Augustus. He is the Messiah. He's the Messiah. He is the one that you, that your people have been hoping for. And again, who is the angel making this announcement to? The shepherds. Nobodies. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Again, Lord is a term that was often used to describe Caesar Augustus. Here's what they say. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, what? Peace. Peace. To those on whom his favor rests. Again, Caesar had ushered in the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. At every step here, we see Luke and these angels laying, previewing what Jesus is going to do and what Jesus is going to be. This is what Caesar Augustus had promised. He had promised peace on earth, but he didn't bring peace peaceably. He brought peace through fear and the use of the sword and through threat of violence. Reflecting on this passage, the great New Testament scholar N.T. Wright has this to say. He says, the point Luke is making is clear. The birth of this little boy is the beginning of a confrontation between the kingdom of God in all its apparent weakness, insignificance, and vulnerability, and the kingdoms of the world. Another commentator says it this way. He says, The disarming intrusion of God into the world in the birth of Jesus stands in sharp contrast to the imperial ambitions of Caesar Augustus. God does not break into the world in a world leader, furor, or cosmic hero, all of which Caesar Augustus epitomized. Instead, God penetrates the defensive armor of the world by sending his son as a child, not to the well connected and established, but to the shepherds who live on the precarious margins of society. So what you're all thinking, so what? Right? What what what's the point? What does this matter? Remember how I told you about origin stories, how superhero origin stories often set the stage. They preview and they foreshadow what's going to come in the life of the superhero. Well, if we look at Christmas as an origin story, we see clues and hints of what God is going to do and how God is going to do them. What we see is that the upside-down nature of the Christmas story is a preview of the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God that Jesus would come to make known. And we see this in the life and the ministry of Jesus. When Jesus enters into his public ministry, as he proclaims who he is and what he's come to do, we see that Jesus is the king who privileges the powerless and opposes the powerful at every step of the way. He's the king who teaches his followers to pray for their enemies and to love them instead of killing them. He's the king who serves and ultimately dies for his subjects instead of making his subjects serve and die for him. At every step of the way, Jesus' teaching flips what the world thought they knew in terms of their ideas about wealth and their ideas about power and their ideas about societal structure. He takes them and he flips them on their head and he turns them upside down. And it's all previewed for us in the Christmas story where God announces the birth of this baby to relative nobodies in relative nowhere to these group of people that nobody really likes. And it's, it's a theme that's consistent through the rest of his ministry. And he ends up laying down his life He's a king who lays down his life, not just for his subjects, but for his enemies. And when he raises from the dead three days and three nights later, he gives his followers instructions. And this little ragtag group of men and women who had been following him around for six months to three years, somewhere in that era, they begin to put his teachings into practice. And this little ragtag group of people in in the armpit of this massive empire Over the course of the next few centuries, we see that love conquers an empire. Without ever swinging the sword, this group of Jesus followers grows and expands because of their radical love, their radical inclusivity, their radical equality, because of how they love and they serve not just themselves, but people who aren't even like them. And in a matter of centuries, this this group of Jesus followers who came to be known as Christians, they end up conquering the Roman Empire, and now 2,000 years later, 2,000 years later, Caesar Augustus is nothing but a footnote in the story of the man that we celebrate today. We talk about Caesar Augustus because of his minor role in the story of Jesus, flipped upside down. People the world over this week and next month, depending on which Christian tradition you're in, are celebrating the birthday of Jesus, not Augustus, as the beginning of the good news for the world. And this all happened through backwards, upside down, doesn't make sense ways of thinking and living. But the story is not over. We believe that Jesus will come back and He will finish what He began. But until then, we know that we as followers of Jesus have been entrusted with a mission to to carry out the instructions that He gave His first followers. We share the good news. We tell the story and we follow His example. And in doing so, we have to resist the temptation To conform to the ways of the world. This has been a perennial struggle for the church for the last 1500 years. Are we willing to follow the backwards, upside down ways of our gracious, selfless serving, enemy loving Savior? So I want to close by reading a hymn that we're going to sing here in a few minutes. The lyrics to this hymn, uh, this is the hymn, O Holy Night. And I just, I I feel like they capture the, the true meaning of the Christmas story in a way that not many other hymns do. I might stop here and there to expound for just a minute, but here's how the hymn goes. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world In sin and error pining, there's messianic expectation, a broken world longing for someone to come in and put things back together. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till He appears and the soul felt its worth. In Jesus, we have a Messiah who shows that everybody, not just those on top, not just those who have, not just those with power, but everybody is of equal and infinite worth in the eyes of god till he appears and the soul felt its worth a thrill of hope a thrill of hope the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn fall on your knees oh hear the angel voices O oh, night divine O oh, night when christ was born Truly, he taught us to love one another. I love this line because so, many, so much of Christianity just, it, it begins with the birth and it skips his life and goes straight to his death. They say Jesus was born to die and they forget everything in between. But no, truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love. His gospel is peace. Chains he shall break. The slave is our what? Our brother. This is revolutionary, folks we we come to we sing these songs and we have this idea this is revolutionary that the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we let all within us praise his holy name christ is the lord not caesar Not Caesar, Christ is the Lord. Oh, praise His name forever, His power and glory evermore. Proclaim. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for this story. I praise You, God, that out of all of the ways that You could have chosen to enter into the mess of the world and fix things, You could have come in somebody like Caesar Augustus at the top of power and wealth and prestige, but instead you chose to send your son as a little infant baby to people that nobody was paying attention to in a place that nobody cared about. You made the announcement to a group of people that nobody liked all to demonstrate, Father, that your love extends to everybody. Father, I pray that we would recapture this vision of your upside-down kingdom, which is really right-side up, that you would help us to grasp that the slave is our brother, that in the economy of the kingdom of God, there's no room for oppression. Father, I pray that you would help us to really grasp that your law is love and your gospel is peace that we would become people known by our love and recognized by our peace. Lord, may the backward-seeming, upside-down-looking way of Jesus come to characterize us as it did the church for the first 300 years. May we once again capture the hearts and lives of those around us because of the way that we love, as was demonstrated to us by sending Your Son not just to die, but to teach us how to live and how to love. Thank you, God, for Christmas and all that it means. May we be transformed by that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.